I'm going to attempt to remember to pray for the refreshments. Forgive me if it escapes my memory. You can yell at me. Feel free. <laughs> Don't forget to remember. Thank you. <laughs> um, Lisa and I really enjoyed our time here. Thank you so much for, uh, well, I'll say something personal. Uh, I work during the week, and sometimes it's a busy week, and sometimes it can be challenging. Uh, the customer is always right, except sometimes they're not. And uh, it can be an interesting twist, not that our our working lives are filled with, uh, you know, wickedness. Uh, Jamie does work with me, so there's some of that, certainly. But uh, it's, it's just kind of a wrenching twist to leave that and to come here and to say, let's work through five sessions together. One of them, most terrifyingly, with the young people. Uh, you have made that very easy for me. And I thank you for your grace and your welcome and your hospitality. This has really been a joy and no better subject to have before us. I discovered uh, this morning during the breaking of bread, actually, a brother got up and he opened and really centered his thoughts on the passage that I want to come to tonight. And I was quite bitter when he got up. I thought, uh-oh, he's going to preach on what I wanted to preach on. But he didn't do it, so I was grateful for that. He went a different way. And then I came here tonight, and, and Rex basically went where I'd like to go. But unsurprisingly, I'd like to come at it from a different angle. Maybe you're getting used to that now. Uh, just before COVID really hit full stride, my father, just a couple of days short of his 95th birthday, went home. He was present with us in a moment, and then he was home. And we had the, it was a pleasure. We had the pleasure of being with him as a family. Sometimes you don't have that opportunity when someone you love passes. But there was nothing beautiful or lovely about that death. I didn't like it. I didn't fear it, but I didn't like it. And really, a year later, Lisa's father went into the hospital, wasn't feeling great, and we didn't know it then, but it would be a visit that would be one of his last, and in a short period of time, he was gone too. And we had the, the privilege as a family of being there as he passed. And we're grateful for that privilege and that opportunity. And I'm not telling you a story, maybe it touches a nerve in your experience, You've gone through something similar, or you, you will. I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, but this life is virtually 100% fatal. I don't fear death. You know, one of the reasons the Lord came, we can talk about a lot of reasons the Lord Jesus came, but the Bible tells us that one of them was this, that he might free those who were subject to slavery through fear of death. The fear of death enslaves. And I tell you, as a Christian standing before you here this evening, I don't fear death. If you tell me tonight is my last night on planet Earth, and I go home, absent the rapture, sometime tonight or sometime tomorrow, I'm genuinely not afraid. I don't fear death. But I'll tell you something about it. I think... 
One of the worst lies we as a culture tell ourselves, maybe the worst lie, is this. That death is part of the grand cycle of life. That it's somehow a, a beautiful part of a process that will mean there's space for someone new to come along and take our place. And we pass out greeting cards with sticky, syrupy, sweet sentiments that say, I will live on in the wind and in the river. I'll live on in your heart. And I think, no, I would rather live on in this body, please, <laughs> given my druthers. It's such an awful lie. And one of the things I love about Christianity, and one of the things that rang so true when I realized it's what it taught, is this. We are encouraged not to hate very many things, but we're absolutely at liberty to hate death. God hates death. He is convinced that death should die. And every death is a reminder of the horrible consequence of sin. We ought to hate it. Don't embrace it. Don't try and rationalize it. It's no part of God's design and God's created order. He doesn't like it. It's not going to last. And we talked in our first evening that there was a moment, unbelievable moment, when it was actually the hand of God that ushered onto the world stage the whole subject of death, the terrible judgment against sin. It happened in the garden. And I would point out to you this evening, it's one of my favorite thoughts, and a songwriter pointed out to me long ago, he said, one day, you'll attend a funeral, and you won't know it, but it'll be the last funeral it'll ever be. And death will be ushered off the stage with no fanfare. It'll be a finished subject for the Christian. Our brother was talking about that moment tonight. And how can I help but talk about it? Because it's Resurrection Sunday. And the resurrection leads inevitably to the rapture. That's the whole point of the resurrection. So, Rex and I will cover the same ground tonight. I hope you'll forgive me. I'll try and make it entertaining if I can. We talked this morning, for those who weren't uh, joining in via Zoom or weren't there in person, I just very briefly would tell you, we talked about the fact, well, really this morning, we left the Lord Jesus on the cross, enduring death. And we pointed out that in that death, very much like a pearl, in that death, the Lord Jesus brought, dare I say it, beauty to the grave. In that death, that thing, that ugliness that is at the center of the human story, the very hinge point of the ages, we find as we look at the death of Christ on the cross, we find there in unbelievable ugliness the most beautiful thing we can imagine, the most beautiful gift of love, the meeting point of hatred and love. We talked about the fact that the death of the Lord Jesus really and his resurrection really doesn't cover a problem as all those sacrifices did in the Old Testament. It resolves the problem. It takes the issue away entirely. And then beautifully, we talked about the fact that the death of Christ, we may look on it with sadness. We may understand that it's our sin that put the Savior there. And we may even weep some tears about that, and perhaps we should. But we don't look at that death with regret. Because we remember there's a son who lived, that the grave didn't hold him. And so we want to come to the subject of the resurrection 
And even, skipping 40 days ahead after that, as our brother reminded us this morning, the subject of the Ascension. So, you can turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of John. That's where we'll spend the bulk of our time. I will confess we will flip around to some of the other Gospels, and we'll look at some other books, but primarily we're going to be in the Gospel of John. And we begin there in verse 33. And I want you to notice first these two words. John's Gospel. The Lord Jesus addressing those he loves. He says this, little children. If I say to you tonight, we have a conversation after the meeting, and I say to you something unkind like, oh, you're a child. <laughs> you understand that's kind of a diminutive, like I'm putting you down. It's, it's derogatory. That's not what we have here. This is a term of the deepest possible affection. When Lisa and I were married, she told me before we were married, I mean, I knew I was what I was getting into. Well, in retrospect, I clearly didn't know what I was getting into, but <laughs> she said, I'd like to have as many children as the Lord sends along. And I, I have to tell you, I struggle to understand kids, and I still do. I struggle to understand myself. I can't deal with them. And I thought, I don't know. <laughs> but I love my wife, and I trusted the Lord, and I thought, okay, well, here we go. Well, the Lord has a sense of humor, right? We got one. <laughs> That's all we could have. And the minute I met him, I thought, I want a million of these. <laughs> Changes your life. If you're not a father yet, man, look forward to the experience. And people keep telling me, like grandparents tell me all the time, it just keeps getting better. And I think, well, you must be wrong about that because it's pretty good right now. <laughs> but I'd like to think it's true. It's great to be a parent. And... <laughs> When the Lord speaks to those he loves, he's speaking with the affection of a parent. He's speaking with the affection of one who one day will say to his father, Behold I and the children you've given me. Little children, I love you. That's how he starts. And it so affects John. You go read John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The Lord here says it once. You know, John will use it eight times. It resonated with John. John loved being called a little child. He passed it along. Little children, he says, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to you, as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now. Speaking prophetically, he says, but you will follow later. Doesn't say to, doesn't say to Peter, you can't, you can't come. He says, not now. Not now, later. Well, impetuous Peter, just like us, uh, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? Now, he doesn't know where the Lord's going. He doesn't know what the Lord's talking about. But he goes on to add this. He says, look, it doesn't matter how extreme it is. It doesn't matter where you're going. Wherever it is, I would go even to the point of losing my own life. I don't care. I love you that much, Lord. I'd, I'd go and I'd lose my own life for you. And he doesn't realize what he's saying. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? The opposite will be true, by the way. Truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And the chapter ends. 
There's a fellow named Stephen Langton back in, I believe, 1200 or so. Got to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, if titles mean anything to you. And Stephen is famous to us, if he's known at all, because he gave us chapter divisions. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> you know, chapter divisions are helpful. If you want to get through the Bible in a year, you read three chapters, and you know when to stop because you got through three of those big numbers, right? You know where the chapters are? They appear big numbers. They're bold, right? It's the end of a chapter. And up until 1200, I guess we didn't have a good way to refer to things like John 3.16. If you were like in 1190 and you said, let me share John 3.16 with you, people would say, what are you talking about? <laughs> the chapter divisions are not inspired. The text is. The writer was inspired. And maybe Stephen was a great guy, and maybe he was very careful about what he did. And frankly, many of his chapter divisions I really like. I'm going to suggest to you maybe this one is the worst. <laughs> because there is not a breath between, there's not a breath in my remote, there is now. There is not a breath between the end of chapter 13 and the start of chapter 14. It's the same conversation. He's not speaking to someone else. He's not started on a different subject. It's not a day later or a week later. I don't know if there's even a breath between these two claims. He says, and it must have been absolutely crushing for Peter, you're going to deny me. You think you'll lay down your life? You won't even utter words on my behalf. And it'll happen almost immediately. You're going to fail at what you said, and you're going to fail utterly. And if you could be a disappointment to me, you'll be a disappointment to me. He doesn't say that, but you understand that's how Peter would have felt. And in the next breath, please don't break up the chapter. In the next breath, he says this, don't let your heart be troubled. <laughs> how could it not be? He says to Peter, don't let your heart be troubled. In my father's house are many dwelling places. And we think of that in a quantitative way. There's a lot of dwelling places. Good idea. I think there are. I think there are billions. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Now the disciples are listening, but I think he's speaking to Peter. And I think we can understand him to be saying, Peter, you're going to mess up and you're going to mess up badly. Worse than you could ever imagine you would. Worse than your highest expectations. But Peter, you need to know something. I know it already, and I love you. And there's homes even for people who betray and lie about the Savior, even for people who let themselves down. And if it wasn't true, Peter, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and the reason I'm doing it, Peter, is not so one day you can get to heaven, though that will certainly be the case. Because heaven really isn't a place so much as it is a person. I go to prepare a place that where I am, you may be also. He wants fellowship with us. And as he would speak to Peter, he speaks to you tonight. Have you ever disappointed the Lord? Have you ever disappointed yourself? Well, if you haven't, give it a minute, you will. <laughs> but there's many dwelling places prepared. And there's a place for Peter, and there's a place for you. If it weren't so, I would have told you. Now I come to this in verse 3. And this means something to people who truck in software for their living. It's an if-then loop. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and in computer code, an if, when that if condition is met, the then condition is inescapable. Always going to happen 100% of the time, if you write your code correctly. Then the Lord Jesus is a great designer, so I'm quite confident he could have written software if he cared to, and he uses an if-then loop. He says this, if I go, then I'll come again. That's the promise of his resurrection. The promise of the rapture is the promise of his resurrection. The two are inescapably tied. If I go, I'm coming again. Did he go? He sure did. He's coming again. If I go, I'm coming again. I go to prepare a place for you. All right, come forward to John chapter 19, please. A few pages forward to John chapter 19. The Lord Jesus, we'll come down to verse 38. The Lord Jesus has died. God incarnate has given his very life as a consequence of the sin of fallen man. He said from the cross those amazing words, it is finished. And he has chosen, for his life was not taken from him, he has commended his spirit. He's given up his spirit. He's commended himself to the Father. He's given up his life. He's given it for you and for me and for those who were there who had trusted in him. We're introduced to this fellow, Joseph of Arimathea. He comes up a couple of times, and other Gospels will refer to him as a, a council member. He's a pretty serious dude. <laughs> one of the other Gospels will say he was not just a council member, but a prominent one. He was a big deal. And then scripture will tell us, you know what he was? And maybe you can identify with this. He was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. And so he believed Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't want to tell anybody because he was afraid. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe you've been afraid a time or two in your life. I know I have. I remember being troubled that I'd talked to a client for years and had gotten to know him and his family, been to his business many times and was connected with him deeply, personally. I'd never shared the gospel with him and I thought, that's awful. And um, I made the terrible mistake, maybe you've made this mistake, I, I made the terrible mistake of praying. <laughs> I said, Lord, I'm a chicken. And I'll make any excuse not to share the gospel. And I'm ashamed of that. But Lord, would you graciously make very clear to me there's an opportunity to speak? And the Lord has a tremendous sense of humor. Maybe you've experienced it because Joe would come and visit me once every couple of months and he never announced that he was coming up from French River, which is miles away from Sudbury. And he walked into my office the very next day. He said, hey, can we do lunch? We didn't often or even always do lunch. And I said, sure. And we walked across the little parking lot to Quiznos, that exalted lunch place. And we sat down. I'd hardly gotten my tray down on the table. And he says, Mark, I wanted to ask you, would you tell me what you believe and why you believe it? I think that was a clue. <laughs> Joseph was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. Now, he's a great mystery to me and maybe a mystery to you because here's what happens. He believes 
Clearly, Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to bring in the kingdom. He's going to elevate Israel to a place of prominence. He's going to liberate it from the Romans. He's going to reign, and those who trust him and go with him, they'll reign with him. Oh dear, the story has taken rather a dramatic turn in a way that was not expected, because this one you thought was the Messiah has died. His body is hanging on the cross. What happens to Joseph? I don't understand Joseph. He was afraid to identify with the Lord Jesus in his life, but he torches his career the moment the Lord is dead. He's not going to be on the council. He's not going to be a prominent member of the council. He's going to be despised. The day before the Sabbath, he's going to be handling a dead body. And the dead body of those, of, of one who the Jews regard as a, a liar and a fraud. Joseph identifies with the Lord Jesus in his death, and I can't say I understand his motivation or his reasoning. Nicodemus does the same thing. You remember Nicodemus was the one who came to him by night, and the Lord gives him this lovely little gentle rebuke, you know, and trying to teach him something, and he says to Nicodemus, I imagine him saying it with sort of a wry smile, are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? For that's what Nicodemus was. Nicodemus was the guy when you had a thorny theological problem that you didn't understand and you were trying to work it out, you might, you know, climb the scale of people. You could talk to your father or your brother or your friend or the local rabbi. You could kind of climb the scale, but eventually when you really couldn't get the problem solved, you got to Nicodemus and he solved your problem. He was the teacher of Israel. And the Lord Jesus says to him, come by night. He says, don't you get it? And it's these two men, one who comes by night, one who's a secret disciple for fear of the Jews, these two men come and take down the body of the Lord Jesus. And Nicodemus comes carrying a hundred pound weight of spices with which to bind the body. They're going to defile themselves. And they're going to come and they're going to commit an act of worship and sacrifice, for that's what it is for both of them, for the sake of a dead Messiah. And I can only think, and one day I'll look forward to asking them, for surely they're both ashore heaven. I'll look forward to asking them, what were you thinking? And I think what must have happened, perhaps, in the manner in which the Lord died, all those Old Testament passages that speak of his death clicked into place. And maybe Isaiah 53 came to mind. And they said, oh, we've missed it, but we won't miss it a moment longer. And if it costs us our lives, let's go. And they go. And I admire those men. Lord used them to treat the body of the, the, the Savior with grace. You know who else I like? Ladies. <laughs> there are some heroic women in the Bible. There really are. I love the story of Hannah. So many good stories. Mary. What character, what strength, what grace. The words they spoke, there's so many women to admire in Scripture. And so many women here, I think, probably worth admiring, too, if I knew your story. Your service for Christ is valued and appreciated. If you, um, well, my weakness in many ways, mostly when I play it, is golf. I like it a little too much. In fact, I like it enough that if you say, let's go golfing, I want to go out as soon as the course opens up. And so what I do, and drives my wife crazy, bless her heart for being patient, 
The golf clubs are by the door. And the shoes are there. Because I'm going to roll out of bed and I'm gone. I love Mary and the women. You know what happens? The Lord dies on the cross and it's the day before the Sabbath and they're going to keep the Sabbath holy. They're reverent, righteous women. They can't do work on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. And the Lord has died and they're brokenhearted. And so they go home and in the last few minutes they have, before they can do no more work, what do they do? They prepare spices, they prepare the things they want and they need, and they're right by the door. And all four Gospels will make a point of what I put on screen. They want you to understand that Mary and Mary and Salome and the women who went that morning, well, this is the way it's described in four different Gospels. While it was still dark, at early dawn, very early, as it began to dawn, do you get the idea that they wanted to be there as soon as they possibly could because they loved the Lord and they loved him even in his death? What is to be gained by going to the grave? It's a body. He's dead. And surely they know that. And they have no hope. They're not going expecting an empty tomb. They're going and they're trying to calculate, what will we do about the stone? It's a big stone. I don't know if we're strong enough to roll it away. And we desperately want to get to the body and honor this one we love so much by preparing him in the best way we can. We want to do whatever we can. He's gone. It's a horrible tragedy. Our hearts are broken. But this is one more act of worship, one last finale for the one we love so much. And they're so eager to go. Can I tell you something about those dear ladies? They're too late. They're too late. As much as that effort that they undertook is a token of their great love for the Lord Jesus Christ, there was one who loved him more who got there first. And one who had more than enough power to roll the stone away. Because when they get there on that glorious morning, a morning maybe like this morning was, the sun has risen and the stone is rolled away. And all that effort, all that fuss, all that trouble, we don't need the spices, we don't need the wrappings. No need for any of that. Because he's risen. The angels speak to them. Supposing him to be the gardener, we talked about what a laugh that is, eh? <laughs> they mistake him for the gardener. The stories are a little different. There's a number of things that happen there. But in John's gospel, they mistake him for the gardener. And he says, Mary. I love the angels. One gospel describes it this way, that when the ladies get there, the stone has been rolled away. Now, I imagine myself as a great artist. I'm not but I like to imagine myself that way. I wish I could paint. I can barely scrawl my name, but I wish I could paint. If I could paint, the first scene I would paint is the scene that's described for us in one of the Gospels when the ladies arrive. The stone is rolled away, and there's an angel. I love the angels. I've said it often, I'll say it again. The angels get all the punchlines, all the comedic moments in Scripture. They really do. I don't know if you've ever thought of angels as screamingly funny, but they are screamingly funny, I promise you. There's an angel, if you can picture it. This is a massive stone that's been put in place. It's sealed with the seal of Rome. There's guards. Well, now the guards are like dead men. They're toast. And that massive stone and that impressive seal, that means nothing to the power of God. And the angel that has been sent, who had the best duty an angel could ever possibly have had, 
must have filled his heart with joy. He's sitting on the stone. And if I was painting the scene, he's kicking his feet and whistling. He's just waiting for them to show up so he can tell them the good news. It's a lovely scene. The angels get all the best lines. The ladies arrive and it's, it's too late. There's nothing for them to do. There's no honor they can offer. And eventually the Lord Jesus speaks to Mary. She mistakes him for the gardener and he speaks to her. And he says to her this, he says, stop clinging to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. This storyline that he's going to go, that's with us. And if he goes, he's going to come again. He says this, here's your mission, Mary. I want you to go to, notice the title, please, my brethren. Who are these guys, by the way? They're all the guys who ran away. Unlike Joseph and Nicodemus. <laughs> They're all the guys who ran away, and they're clustered in a little room, and they're, um, um, everything's off the rails. The one we trusted and followed that we thought was going to lead us into the kingdom is dead, and we're probably next. They know we were with him. They all know, are they coming to get us? And there's a knock at the door. Mary's been sent. The Lord sent her, he said, to the, he said to her this, he said, go to my brethren. Go talk to my brothers. And what message is he to take? Well, here's the message. I ascend to my Father, and I ascend to my God. The Lord Jesus died on the cross. He was the Messiah. He was God's chosen one, at least we thought he was. But now he's died. And the only way we can rationalize it is to say he must have been rejected by God. We must have been wrong. We must have been mistaken like so many have been mistaken before. We don't understand how it could have happened, how he could have done all those things. But there must be a dramatic disconnect from, from God because a death like that, man. That's the storyline they're thinking. And the Lord Jesus sends this message to them. Well, if you imagine there was a disconnect between the Father and I, you're desperately wrong because I'm ascending to him. We're in complete fellowship on this. This is his plan and my plan and something marvelous you never would have imagined is happening. I've risen and I've not risen to be disconnected from the Father. I'm completely connected to him. In fact, I'm going to be with him. He says this, I go to my Father and my God. And then he says something even more precious because it's tied into that language. He's tied into the message. He says, I go to your Father and your God. And if you think you were disconnected from God because you rejected the Lord Jesus, because you ran, because you were a coward, because you failed, you're dead wrong about that. He's your Father and your God. The first word from the Lord Jesus when he rises, the first message that Mary has the grace and the privilege of carrying is that everything's good. Everything's good. Relationships you thought were destroyed are restored. All right. Over to the Gospel of Luke, if you would, please. Over to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24 and verse 50. We're coming to the end of the story, aren't we? He's had 40 days with those he loves. He's been reconnected with them, reconnected with Thomas, reconnected with Peter, reconnected with all those who fled and were so cowardly, been reconnected with all of them. 
And he's spoken to them for 40 days, and he's spoken to hundreds of others. And there is no doubt that the Lord Jesus is risen. The one who said, if I go, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. And Luke describes a scene that will close out his gospel. He led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Can you picture the scene? It's described for us. I'm not making this up, you know. He leads them out to Bethany, a little place on the side of the Mount of Olives, just a short walk from Jerusalem. He's taking them from Jerusalem out. One scripture says Olivet, one says Bethany. It's the same thing. He takes them out on the south side of Olivet. It's Bethany. And he puts out his hands. Oh, kind of takes you back to a moment 40 days earlier, doesn't it? And there in his palms are the nail prints. We know they persist. They're gathered around him. They want to hear what he's going to say. And he puts out his arms. And there are the nail prints. And we don't know what the disciples thought when he did that. But put yourself in their shoes. They're looking at the wounds. And he's about to speak. And what will he say? You rascals all failed me. Look what you cost me. You need to think about who you are and what you've done. You've failed bitterly and horribly. You really need to be better people. No, indeed. He puts out his hands, and there, in the immediate context of his suffering, his arms are out, reminding them of the cross. The wounds are there, reminding them of the cost of their sin. And with his arms out, he blesses them. What a savior. He begins to speak blessing to them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them. That's the ascension. Off he goes. Luke wrote another book. Turn over to Acts chapter 1. Same author, <clears throat> same event. Beginning in verse 6. Beginning at verse 6, we read this. So when they'd come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? So you know what they're thinking. There were all these promises about what the Messiah would do. And then he died on the cross. And it seemed like all those promises were null and void. But now he's risen. And what is he planning to do? It must be that this one who has conquered even death will now conquer Rome and bring in all the Old Testament promises, Israel in ascendancy. And here our Lord has the perfect opportunity to say what some people seem to think he said. He has the perfect opportunity to say, you know, when the Jews rejected me, they lost their place. And they're going to be replaced by something called the church. And all the promises that they had now accrue to the church. So you need to get this silliness about an ascendant Israel and a restored nation out of your mind. They rejected and crucified me. I'm done with them. 
That's the perfect moment to say it because they ask him exactly that question. Lord, are you fulfilling the things you said about Israel now? Is this the great moment that we've all been waiting for? And what is his answer? It's an implied yes. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And if I can paraphrase, he seems to be saying, Oh, that's happening. But it's not for your time. It'll happen. God's promises are sure. What he said he'll do, he'll do. But I have different work for you right now. This is another one of those moments like it was with Peter, you know. He says, Peter says, now, and the Lord says, no, later. They say, is it now? And he says, no, it's later. It's later. It's not for you. I have work for you to do. You'll receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And that is a requirement and a duty and an obligation and a privilege that has fallen to you and I here some 2,000 plus years later. That obligation begins and continues, doesn't it? And after he'd said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. This is the same event that was described for us by Luke, the same author, a few moments earlier. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, this is a moment I love. Okay, so what's happened? His arms are out, he's speaking blessing, and he begins to ascend. Okay, now you're there, you're listening to him, what do you do? The angels show up. You imagine them walking up behind a group of disciples who are a little distracted looking up. <laughs> Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up? <laughs> That's a great question. And if you were a little sharp as a disciple, a little snippy, and maybe it's not a good idea to be snippy with angels, you might say something like, well, see, here's the deal. We've not seen a lot of this before. This is kind of a new thing for us. So if you could pipe down and let us watch and listen, that would be appreciated, okay? The angels come along and they say, men of Galilee, you got work to do. Stop gawping, get moving. Why stand ye gazing up? The same kind of question the angel asks at the tomb. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Well, because when people die, we always go to their tomb, and they're always there, 100% of the time. This is rather weird to us. Maybe it's normal to you, but it's weird to us, so cut us some slack. Mary didn't speak like that. It's probably a good thing I wasn't there. Too snippy. What a scene. What a scene. Men of Galilee, why stand you looking up? They go on to say this. This same Jesus, this Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come. Now, please notice this phrase. Maybe you want to underline it, if not physically, then mentally. This same Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come. This is the if-then loop. Will come in just the same way as you have seen and as you have watched him go into heaven. He will come in just the same way. Please do not give a moment's thought to any silliness that suggests he has come spiritually, invisibly, symbolically, 
And it's already happened. It happened back in AD 70 or somewhere around there. The angels, I have it on the authority of the angels that the way he left is the way he'll come back. And I want to remind you of the way he left. How did he leave? We talked about it. How is he coming back? He's coming back, arms out. <laughs> he left. Now, I worked in retail for some time, so I am familiar with people that you make so angry that as they leave, they're muttering. <laughs> and you can hear their muttering trailing off. His leaving was very different. He was speaking blessing. And may I say, it was rather intemperate of heaven to take him home while he still had something to say. Can you imagine cutting off the Lord Jesus? He's blessing them. He has amazing things to say. They're excited to hear them. How could you not be excited to hear the Lord Jesus speaking blessing to you? And he's gone. And his voice has trailed off. That's rather rude of heaven, if I can say it comes back in just the same way, and now the voice is not trailing off. Now what you'll hear is a shout of blessing. And he comes back in just the same way, arms out, blessing on his lips. Those arms that could judge you for what your sin cost, they're just extended to welcome you. And I don't know what the shout will be, our brother mentioned it. I rather like to think that each of us will hear our own name called, just so we can be sure he means us. Why would heaven be so rude, if I may say it, to take him while he was in the middle of blessing? Well, I think the clue is there for us in the fact that he comes back in just the same way. And here's the problem and the challenge heaven faced. If they had chosen to wait to call him home and to take him into heaven until he had finished blessing, they would still be waiting. I think the fact that he left in blessing and the fact that he comes back in blessing is a little clue to us that right now he's in the business of blessing. This is the Savior who ever lives to make intercession for us. He's making intercession for you right now. You're on his heart and you're on his lips, and he speaks your name in the very throne room of heaven. And one day he's coming back for you with a shout. Where's your hope tonight? Have you looked around lately? I don't know about you, maybe I'm just too cynical, but this world doesn't seem to be getting a lot better to me. It's full of disappointment, heartache, cruelty, casual cruelty, indifference, selfishness. This world is irretrievably broken. And so I'm not looking for the guy after Trudeau, although I'm hopeful. <laughs> I'm not looking for a sudden reversal in our economic troubles. I'm not looking, sadly, for my body to get better and for the six-pack abs to appear. It's going in a rather unfortunate direction. My brother called me the other day and said he feels like a melting candle. <laughs> My hope isn't in this place. My hope isn't even in you. As much as I've enjoyed time with you, you know what? I'm looking forward to leaving you. <laughs> I want to be with my Savior. More joyful still if we can all go together. If I go, I'll come again to 
absolutely sure. That's where we're heading, brothers and sisters. Maybe tonight. What a glorious hope he's given. Let's close our meeting in a time of prayer. And I'll give thanks for the food. Father, we have received a tremendous gift in the person of your Son, that you have chosen him to be our Savior. And what a perfect and complete salvation he has brought. He's rescued us from sin. He's taken from us any fear of death, and one day, death itself. He has brought us life and life abundant. He's brought us the fellowship of saints and the encouragement we have in each other. In a dark world, Father, he has brought light. In a world filled with disappointment, many of them brought on by our own choices and our own hands, he's spoken to us and said, I go to prepare a place for you, yes, even for you. And if I go, I'll come again to receive you to myself. It's absolutely sure. What a hope and what a home we have because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for this assembly and the group of assemblies here, for the work that goes on at Downtown Outreach, for the work that goes on at Bridalwood, for the work that goes on here, for the lovely saints I've had the privilege of meeting and spending a little time with, and I look forward to spending eternity with them. I want to thank you for them and for the work that goes on here in Ottawa. Father, bless their efforts. Would you be in all they do? Bring them together in unity. Encourage them in hope. Father, thank you for our brother Rex. Bless him even now as he prepares to travel and enjoys a drive. We thank you for him and his ministry here and the ministry that goes on. And I think back to my own home. Thank you for my family. Thank you for the assembly there in Sudbury and the work that goes on there. We see your wonderful hand working everywhere and all done through the marvelous work of our Savior and his finished work on the cross. Thank you for the hope we have in him. Thank you for each other. And thank you for even the smaller things that we enjoy, the hands that have prepared the food downstairs, the drinks for us to enjoy, the conversations we'll have. Father, do the work of eternity in our hearts even now. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and time to speak well and to think well of him in his great name. Amen. Amen.